a huge inspiration to both of us. Uh, obviously, being the godfather of the gaming industry or the father of the gaming industry, you know, it's it's now 50 years uh, of computer space, uh, 50 years of Atari. How does that make you feel looking back at, you know, the whole legacy of Atari coming on 50 years? I mean, relatively a new gaming industry, a new industry, and so much has happened, so much has changed in a short amount of time. Uh, how does it make you feel? And what do you see the next 50 years looking like for the video game industry? Well, you know, I've never been very excited about looking at my life in the rearview mirror. The thing that excites me is the, the shit I'm working on right now. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. two or three games that I want to, that uh, I'm architecting that have unique business models and kind of a different flair to them. Um, I'm doing a lot of work in the physical game space uh, that what if are you acquainted with the museum of ice cream and what, what we call selfie museums? Uh, I think so. Yeah. They're basically uh, neat environments where people can go in and take selfies of themselves and have kind of a different sort of visceral experience well suppose there was a selfie museum that was all interactive i like to say that a selfie museum and an arcade had a baby what would it look like right so i'm doing a thing called zips lab which is an interactive selfie museum where you can come and you play you buy a ticket and you get to play as much as you want to and what it does is it allows for a whole bunch of games that do not work well on a pay-per-play basis. And so it adds a whole panoply of games that people haven't played yet, which is fun for me. Anyway. That sounds dope. No, that sounds great. Yeah, um, I'm really interested to see, see more of this and hear more about this concept. Um, I know that a lot of museums and a lot of public spaces have been implementing, you know, selfie installations and mechanisms to allow people to interact more with the spaces and use hashtags and publicize it online. So I'm very much interested to see how that could influence arcades. I mean, that's a big thing about what our newsletter and podcast is about. It's about the legacy of arcades and the future of arcades. Do you see that that's the future of where arcades could go, being more, in, being more interactive and more integrated with with social media and, 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 and camera technology? Well, you know, there's the game business can no, to no longer, you can no longer talk about it as the game business. It's, there's so many, I mean, mobile is different than console, different than, than browser games. And right. then you have the whole physical space where you have Dave and Busters and my son with, with two bit circus you know, has a whole different construct. Tyler with Polycade, again, a very uh, old and yet new form factor construct. Um, and so I think that all the fun for me has always been on the edge. Where do you do, Where? what's the edge points that have not been explored yet? And And I think you know, Brent's been doing that, and I expect I, I, I intend to continue to do that. And Tyler, with his business model and and uh, the games that 
uh, are there and the ways that uh, the indie community can interface and all of a sudden have an outlet. These are all exciting things on the edge. Yeah, most definitely. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm really excited to see where that, you know, takes particularly public spaces considering, you know, how we've been affected with, you know, the pandemic and, and how public spaces are affected. I mean, public spaces are key to community and games are key to community. I'm curious to your experience with, uh, you know, with being a carny as a young person. And, and I'm really curious, I feel like you'd be a great person to ask about, like, what's your perspective on the early coin-op era and how did it influence arcade games and your particular perspective on gaming? You know, because when we think about arcade games, you know, the first one, we usually think about computer space, but, you know, depending on how we think about arcades and how we think about coin-operated games and, and um, in that sense, there, there was an era before computer space, though they weren't video games. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. The arcade has gone through several sort of iterations that that really made a lot of money selling penny peep shows. And you'd basically put a penny in and you'd see a bunch of cards that would flip that would get look like animation. That that happened at the turn of the century. There were a lot of those. There were also these kind of vignettes where there'd be a piece of glass in front of a model of a circus. And when you put a coin in, all of a sudden the ballerinas, the twirl, and the, the you know, they, they'd come alive and they'd be animated. These, a lot of these were built in you know, 1910, 1920. And uh, and that was kind of a way that arcades looked. Then probably in the 50s, early 50s, there was a series of games that were mechanical, but they used essentially slide projector technology where there was a light and a lens and a piece of film and probably the best example was a game called uh, Speedway from Chicago Coin. And they sold a bunch of them, and it was a driving game. Uh, before that, there was a driving game in which there was a drum that had a roll, and you had to drop the, when you turned the wheel, the car would go to the left or the right to stay on the road. And if you drove off, you know, you'd get points if you stayed on the road. And you'd uh, get penalized if you fell off, if you drove off the road. Mm. These were all in the 40s and 50s. There was a, a lot of this innovation happening right after the Second World War. And then, of course, the ballyhoo, the pinball, was actually started in um, 1928, I think, if I remember correctly. and there's actually a very big link between the slot machine and the pinball because during during prohibition the mafia um, provided speakeasies illegal alcohol prostitution 
gambling and uh, loan sharking. Right. When prohibition was repealed, they still had three legs. And the gambling part moved from roulette wheels and, and poker tables to coin-operated machines. And there were these games called one balls and bingos that were nothing more than disguised gaming, uh, gambling devices in places where gambling was made illegal. And, uh, and so that kept on through my childhood where I, I learned how to play the pinball bingo, bingo games, you know, in, in my teens. So, um, and so when, pinballs became amusement only they still carried that stench of being a mafia-based construct of gambling and so a lot of places new york city as an example outlawed the pinball until probably the middle 80s uh, and uh, and that's it was just kind of interesting to climb into the history like that uh, to see what was happening. And in fact, the, a lot of my distributors were old mafioso guys. Uh, wow. And, that's, uh, <laughs> that's wild. That's wild. Yeah. Like my, my, <laughs> but a lot of time, but by the time I was there, it was their, uh, it was second generation. And so they'd all kind of gone legitimate and uh, everything, but my Minneapolis distributors, dad's name was Bullets. <laughs> wow. Wow. <coughs> That's fascinating, man. That is fascinating. What is it about uh, arcades uh, and arcade machines, coin-operated machines that make them work so well? Is it some sort of... Uh, you know, I, I kind of written about it and compared it to kind of like Monolith in a 2001 A Space Odyssey. You know, at least for me as a kid, it's kind of like that first time that, you know, the 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 apes, the humanoids are, are coming in contact with this alien technology. And, and in this, you know, anything can happen and any idea can happen. Sort of this, you know, relationship with technology. Um, what What is it that makes this work? Is it because it's just fascinating and it's just tech and it's just something about the way that the games work are exciting to human beings why do arcade games still resonate with people in a, in a world where you know many arcades are, are not around in the same capacity that they were in the heyday i think it's bite-sized entertainment mm -hmm. and uh and you know games are an encapsulation of a, of a simulation Defined rules, scoring. Scoring is something that somehow is speaks to our DNA, I think. That uh, if there's a score, we want to get a high score. <laughs> and Definitely. If, if we got a, a, a score this game, we want to play again and get a higher score next time. You know, I, I think it's I think it's somehow hardwired into our into our mind. When did, for you, you know, you kind of helped spearhead this whole new industry, this whole new uh, aspect of, um, of, 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 of entertainment and of commerce. What part was the most fascinating for you 
when culture kind of collided with that, when legislation collided with that or other aspects of more established parts of American culture or a world culture collided with what you were doing. And you were like, huh, this is interesting. I didn't expect that. I didn't expect people to take it that way. For example, you talked about how, like how Pong in a way helped, uh, uh, you know, women pick up guys or at least court guys or talk to guys at the bar. It was like a mechanism to help people um, you know, get to know each other. Did you anticipate things like that? Were there other things like that that happened? I mean, of course, we know that like Mortal Kombat and Midway, you know, received a lot of controversy when their games had a lot of violence in the, you know, fighting game scene. Uh, that's an interesting point of history where violence and legislation kind of collided with the video game industry. Are there other things like that that happened? I mean, I didn't, I didn't know that that the mafia had you know, such a deep uh, relationship with coin operation and, and that whole. There's, you know, there's a couple of books I'm trying to think that kind of spell that out more definitively. Yeah. But uh, in some ways, video games are in fact the training wheels of computer literacy. In the early days where we had video games, but we really didn't have personal computers yet, right. there were countries, whole countries, that outlawed video games, coin up video games. We didn't have the consumer ones yet. And the legacy of that is those countries fell way behind in the computer literacy of their population. Wow. Like, when it came to the internet, Japan is like, was so late to the party because they didn't have a precursor to the internet, which were dial-up modems that you could afford because telephone lines were very expensive in Japan. And it wasn't like it is in the United States where if you make a local call, it's free. Mm -hmm. And no matter, you know, you were charged by the minute, no matter what you did. If you're using the phone, you were charged by the minute. And as a result, when in the early, it took Japan a long time to catch up. And even today, if you look at internet savvy, Korea beats the shit out of all of them. And that was mm -hmm. because they were the first to put uh, fiber into every home and very low cost and and the benefit that the Korean economy had because of that is massive yeah and then you know like even China you know they just lifted their ban off uh, arcade games in 2009 so I mean they basically skipped the whole PC computer era which is why their gaming population is primarily mobile gaming right so yeah and and they kind of have a reputation for their websites not being too good because of that. You know, they built they built all their websites for mobile. Yeah, mobile. You know, that's quite fascinating. So arcades are kind of the gateway technology in a way, like you said, to computer literacy, to access to information. Like it started with arcades, and even you, you started with um, you started using ham radios as a kid. Uh, that was kind of how you got started using technology is that your earliest memory of kind of tinkering with technology is your ham radio absolutely yeah i mean ham radio was my gateway drug no question about it 
<laughs> mm, mm, man, that's fascinating. And what do you think about when you think about your history? What's your earliest memory of you expressing the way that you learn or you or the way you think or your earliest memory of being like super enthusiastic about something? Because I know now, you know, you've talked a lot about learning the process of learning, how to learn properly. You, you've been invested and interested in education for a while, educating others. Um, what's your earliest memory of like, oh, this is where my personality and my way of thinking is actually being expressed in, in what I'm doing. For me, it's, 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 it's being completely obsessed with arcades in the early 90s. I mean, completely obsessed with Street Fighter and the like. And I'm curious what that was for you. I think that on top of ham radio, I just loved to make little gadgets mm. and, and, you know, stupid gadgets, if you want to know, like <laughs> I was, <laughs> I wired up, I had a winter coat and I wired it up so that I had a, a, light bulb from a from a uh, flashlight i glued a little lens on it and a reflector so it was basically on my lapel and i had a button in my pocket and i could walk down the street at night and i had my my uh uh illumination but that wasn't enough i painted a, a, a flashlight bulb red and I put it on the back because I didn't want somebody to run into me. <laughs> right. Hmm. I look at it and I think now, you know. <laughs> Have you ever tried to remake it? <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those great inventions that it had. But I also figured out how to make a shocker. Hmm. And uh, there were these little transformers that every radio had. And uh, the, the radios at that point were tubes. And so you had to do a big step up. But whenever you have a step up, you have a step down. And, and so you could take a flashlight battery, you know, just break the, you know, you can't put DC in a transformer. So you, you'd have a little, a little file or something to, to break the circuit. And then turn it around, and you could give somebody one hell of a shock. And those were really great. <laughs> right. Sell to people to terrorize their sisters with. Of course. Of course. So I, I made those hmm. made a lot of money on building these little shockers. I'm glad I didn't kill somebody. <laughs> you, well, you one of your first ventures was, you know, selling strawberries, right? Right. Um, have you did you ever think of or did you ever get back into food production or you know any anything about yeah the, I mean obviously you, you did have uh you're a serial entrepreneur right you've been involved in many many different parts of projects you, you had restaurants have many many Chuck E. Cheese you know to name a few uh but did you ever get interested in like um you know any food sustainability just out of curiosity or food production or farming or anything like that just out of curiosity no, I played Farmville a little bit from Zinger. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Same thing, right? 
same thing. Well, you're a futurist, right? And uh, this is going to be kind of a, of a two-part question. Did the NFT project, uh, which, like, like I said, congratulations on that on that drop, where you for the 50th anniversary of Computer Space release, uh, Pong, computer, computer Space, etc. Did that give you an opportunity to really look back? Because I know you're always looking forward. Yeah, and, and well. I actually saw it as looking forward to me because the NFT space was something I was curious about. And uh, it was a learning experience for us. So we're going to do another drop in a month or so. Oh, great. Because I didn't get in on the first one, <laughs> but and I'm going to get it on the next one. Yeah, great. We've got a whole bunch of good stuff coming that, that is going to be wonderful. And what we're, what we're kind of putting together a little bit is sort of a club of the people who own our F NFTs will be able to join hands in the metaverse and play the arcade of the future in the metaverse. And, uh, and it's going to be driven by NFTs and, and, and cryptocurrencies and, and the future, because we actually think the metaverse is going to be a fun area. I mean, I don't know if you played in Second Life uh, 10 years ago, but it was good, but it was clunky. And mm -hmm. uh, and I think that it's going to be fun to be have a, a, a full de digital environment to experiment in. And uh, I'm kind of looking forward to being one of the architects. Man, super excited for that. And, and once again, thank you for just constantly, you know, innovating and contributing to technology, gaming and innovation. You know, I, it's it's inspiring to see someone that had such a huge influence in the industry still be interested in it. You know, it's like, you know, you're always giving back. So, you know, we appreciate that. Well, I appreciate that. I want to mention, though, you were talking yeah. about public spaces. Yeah. Have you heard about my Weird Woods project? Weird Wicks? Weird Woods. Weird Woods. No, I'm not familiar. Think about an arcade and a campground. Yeah. And so now we have, instead of escape rooms, we have an escape trail. Where in order to get from one end to the other, you have to solve puzzles and have fun. Thank cool. Instead of whack-a-mole, you have Mole Meadow. That is a, you know, 10 square, square yards. Yeah. And moles pop up out of the lawn, out of the ground. <laughs> okay. All you right. Run around with a hammer and whack them. All right. That sounds pretty crazy. Like, it's like a, yeah, game show. Well, the whole idea is, can we create a panoply of fun out of doors, mm. weatherproof, what have you? I mean, I, I like to show off some of my fun little things. What this is? Mm. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure. What is that? It's a pistol. It's an oh, air pistol. Dope. Great. And there will be a mole on top of this. And it'll okay. pop. You have to whack it. <laughs> okay. That's brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. 
anyway, I, and uh, we, we've got a whole, we've, we've designed 23 games that can be worked outside. Uh, imagine a zip line in okay. the car. Okay. So now you're zipping down, but instead of just over trees and rocks, you're going over Niagara Falls or from the top of the Empire State Building. So we can yeah. create a synthetic experience on a zip line. Yeah, that's definitely the future. That's definitely, yeah, that's next level. I think that's pretty incredible. I think, um, yeah, basically like having an activity zone, right, of things that people can do, but enhancing that zone with technology and, and, and AR and VR and everything else, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of like that there will be some people that will love the shit out of it. Yeah, of course, a hundred percent. And I know one of your favorite books is uh, Ready Player One. Oh and, yeah, yeah. And I'm curious to to know what you think about what you thought about the movie, the film, and uh, you know, we, we, I know you're also interested in investing in virtual reality technology. Um, how do you feel about virtual reality gaming and virtual? reality experiences as it relates to to gaming you know i i don't really i see them kind of as very different things right of course you can game in virtual reality but virtual reality could really do anything i mean it's the skies are the limit it's kind of how you want to approach the technology right it's another it's another hue on the palette and so i think that i i think vr is is great what it does, it gives you a 360 environment that is in some ways more compelling than just a powerful screen. And, uh, and I think VR is here to stay. I also like AR. Um, AR is fun. In fact, there's, there's a very interesting Netflix offering called Memories of Alhambra. It's a Korean movie, Korean series in which augmented reality runs amok. It's really fun. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really cool. You know, I mean, talking, to, I'll have to check that out. Memories of Hambra, right? Memories of Alhambra. People are talking about the squid game, which, yeah. is, which is games run amok. But Memories of Alhambra, I thought, was quite, quite special. Any other favorite movies or like top recommendations for shows that people absolutely need to see? Any time period is fine. Oh, Princess Bride for sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, definitely. I watched Pan's Labyrinth the other day, and that's yeah. that's that stood up pretty well. And uh, and the one uh, all of a sudden I can't think of the name of it. With David Bowie, um, it's a labyrinth, but it's not Pan's Labyrinth. Anyway. Um, I think it's just called Labyrinth, right? You're right. That's you're you're exactly right. Labyrinth. Yeah, you you're right. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, just it's just Labyrinth. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm curious a little bit, kind of switch gears a little bit about, uh, you know, the 70s and futurism. You know, computer space was, you know, not only really the first video game product making history in that in that regard, but it also was the first video game featured in a movie, Soylent Green, which takes place in the year 2022, which 
uh, will be next year. Uh, how, like, talk to us a little bit about the 70s and futurism, because it has a very noticeable and recognizable aesthetic when we talk about futurism in the 70s and even the Atari. I mean, how, you know, George Opperman designed the, the logo and the feel for a lot of the Atari's games. And of course, you're a big sci-fi fan. Like, how, uh, you know, how... How did that come together? How did, like, what was the 70s and futurism all about? How did it define itself? How did it come to be? And, like, for Atari, for example, <clears throat> when you were developing it and working on it, you know, a lot of the Atari's design choices were very futuristic. They were very future forward. They even today, uh, you know, they're timeless designs and they're still ahead of, ahead of, ahead of the game. Um, as far as the artwork and some of the covers and some of the, the logo design, design choices, colors. I mean, obviously we see it in Polygate in a lot of ways and it still works today in, with Polygate. I'm just curious to like, uh, what was that era about and how did that feel in the 70s when people were really exploring what the year 2020, et cetera, would look like? When people are talking about the future, science fiction, what have you, there's two distinct camps. There's kind of the post-apocalyptic noir view right there's an optimistic okay. everything's going to be wonderful with a catch kind of too <laughs> right aspect and i think that uh that the 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 apocalyptic stuff was really you know it it never really happens as fast or as bad i mean you know the overpopulation and the de deterioration of the world in soil and grain for 2022, you know, that's clearly not, didn't happen. You know, if you right. look at Blade Runner, you know, uh, the tech was there with biotech and all that, but, but, you know, the raining all the time and sort of the people going off world and all that, because life had gone, turned into a hellhole here. Um, even the blade the, the subsequent blade runner so i think that uh, human beings are massively adaptable to things that change and uh and i think that uh the i don't see the singularity being a problem um I see the kind of continuation of what we're having now, but you know, if you look at world poverty rates, they're all plumbing. The plummeting. The number of people that are starving to death now in the world is very, very small compared to what was even ten years ago, twenty years ago. And I expect that progress to continue. Um, I think that there are some areas where we, we have some problems. I mean, governments can screw anything up, you know, and they often try to. And, uh, and it's going to be interesting to see how, like if you look at cryptocurrencies, hmm. all of a sudden a store of value that is not manipulated by government policy mm -hmm. um, 
that's going to piss a lot of countries off. Like uh, China just made it illegal to own Bitcoin, um, or something like that. They they put a relative, yeah. rather yeah. draconian thing in place, and yeah. so you know this this whole idea of the state versus the individual is going to be playing out very aggressively in the next 20 years. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see who wins. <laughs> yeah, it'll be very interesting and also uh, very concerning. Um, yeah, that's that's powerful. Um, what is something that you want young people to to think about when you know they're you know, moving throughout the world and they're uh, embracing technology? And uh, what are things that people could be thinking? Not just young people, everybody. What are things people could be thinking more about in order to, uh, I'm assuming, future-proof themselves uh, to be able to. I guess in some cases stand up for themselves or you know represent themselves or communicate their ideas uh how do we avoid those uh negative dystopian futuristic uh outlooks perspectives i think that it's important that everybody be a little optimistic mm. but they also need to believe that they are only victims of themselves that uh, victimhood where you blame others is the fast track to despair because you're not going to be able to control other people you can only control yourself and mm -hmm. so once you decide that you're the captain of your fate and the master of your ship you're going to be a happier person and you can actually make the world a better place you know wallowing in despair victimhood pathway to nowhere mm -hmm. i think the next thing you have to maintain a certain amount of humility and i think that every young person needs to be needs to understand that they're massively stupid mm. like incredibly stupid and that probably lasts well into your fifties. Where... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and the uh, and so by having a learner's mind and not think you've got it all figured out is really helpful. Um, I I am just gobsmacked at how stupid the average college kids is today mm. when they have this arrogance about them and there's nothing more dangerous than a stupid person that doesn't know they're stupid mm. you know because the last thing you want to do is have them actually do anything <laughs> right and i remember you said one of the worst things is to be is entitled because it's harder to learn entitled and and uh and and enfranchised when you have neither the the capability nor the credentials 